Welcome, everybody, to the inaugural episode of the Ballot Breakdown Podcast, a show formed by college students to help anybody understand vital elections across the country, from California to Connecticut, North Carolina to Nevada, and everywhere in between. Today, October 22nd, my na- actually, it's the 24th, my apologies. My name is Daniel Tamala, and I'm joined by my co-host, Nicole Sana. Hello. And Will Allison. Hello. And I'd also like to give a shout out to our production team, Izzy Belcito and Emily Ashley. This is the first of many episodes to come. And we are so excited to bring you a quality, listenable podcast with some exciting guests coming in later episodes. This episode will focus on the Virginian governor's race, a two-way affair between Democrat and former, though not incumbent, Virginia governor Terry McAuliffe and Republican challenger and businessman Glenn Youngkin. The election is slated to happen in just 11 days, on, or actually just nine days, on November 2nd, 2021, and is looking to be a far closer race than anyone in the Democratic Party hoped it would become. As the clock ticks and the bank account's empty, it looks like it's anyone's ball game. Or is that really true? Let's start off with a quick overview of both candidates. So, Will, who is Terry McAuliffe? What policies does he push? And what has his campaign focused on thus far? So, Terry McAuliffe is a longtime Democratic Party fundraiser. Uh, he began his career working with uh, Jimmy Carter's re-election campaign in charge of financing, which is how he got started into all that. Uh, after that, he spent a lot of time in business. He became president or I think chairman of a bank. He merged banks. Uh, He did a lot of business work through that. And he decided after many, many years of fundraising, including a long career raising money for the Clintons, uh, that he wanted to pursue elected office. So he ran originally for governor. Uh, He did not do very well at that first attempt. He came back for a second try, uh, was successful. And with the Virginia system, you can become governor. You have a term limit of two terms, but they have to be non-consecutive. So after his term, he went out for a term, and now he's trying to come back in to finish his second term. All right. Uh, You said he was a DNC chair, correct? Yes. Um, He was a really, really good DNC chair. Like He's probably the best DNC chair we've had in in this uh, century, right? Like Mm, I believe he raised how much money for the DNC? It was was an incredible amount. Uh, I can up the exact number here but he basically single-handedly pulled the party out of debt um through his fundraising yeah here we go so uh for the clintons as well um he raised almost 275 million dollars during that presidency which uh at this point uh, as big as that number is it might seem not quite as big because of inflation but at the time mm. that was in like a, a ludicrous figure oh, yeah. uh, especially considering the fact that he did a lot of it just through personal contacts um but yeah, for his massive Rolodex. Oh yeah, his, you said it was his Rolodex. If I believe at this point, I think it's eighteen thousand names, Man. maybe something like something close to that, maybe around eighteen thousand, which I mean, is I, I an incredibly get, large Rolodex. I don't think I could <laughs> could could keep track of names after three, four, five hundred. Uh, yeah, that's ridiculously impressive. Um, and I believe uh, so. He eliminated the Democratic Party's debt. Um, I know he built online voter d- databases. Mm-hmm. Um, which have really helped the Democratic Party in in this century. Yeah. Um, and I know he also began the currently widely used practice of focusing on small dollar donations, which is something so many Democrats uh, thrive or uh, pride themselves on um, in current campaigns, or especially in the last four or five years. Um, yeah, I think I think it's very fair to say that when you look at the modern operations of the DNC, I think I think Terry McAuliffe is responsible for a lot of that, especially around the way it's financed. Um, because when you look at how it functioned beforehand and how it functioned after, I mean, he completely changed it. Mm. Um, so he has a, he has a pretty impressive record there, which is part of why he 
managed to make it into the governor's mansion on his second attempt without holding any other elected office previously. And as governor, he made a huge use of his veto pen. Absolutely. I believe. Yeah. Vetoing like a record number of bills in Virginia. Yeah, for the, for it was the time. A, it wasn't even a close record too. It was it was a very well set record. Yeah, <laughs> and then he did that, and then his other huge accomplishment in Virginia was mass enfranchisement of felons. Yes, uh, which was controversial, especially in Virginia, yes. which at the time of his election was a pretty close. Yeah, it was uh, a swing pretty, state. At the pretty, time. It was definitely a swing state, um, and he reenfranchised, I believe it was over two hundred thousand Virginians. Yeah, it was a lot of people. Um, I, I don't remember the exact percentage of the number of felons, but it was a massive number. Yeah. Like it was, it was one of the main achievements of his administration, just because of the sheer size of it. Mm. Yeah, definitely, really helped Virginia become the near blue stronghold almost it is today. Mm-hmm. So now, Nicole, let's continue with this. What is Glenn Glenn Youngkin, the Republican challenger and former businessman? What's his story? What does he promise Virginians? And who who is he really? So like you said, he's a businessman and political outsider, which sounds kind of reminiscent of Trump. Mm -hmm. Um, He was the executive of the global investment firm, the Carlyle Group, and he just retired from that to join the political game. So very much an outsider in that respect. Um, He founded the Virginia Ready Initiative, which was a nonprofit during the pandemic to help Virginians get job training and find new jobs. So really he's branding himself as like someone that can get the Virginia economy back on its feet. And in order to do that, he thinks they need someone that knows the economy, knows how businesses work so that he can really help them out in that way. Mm. Um, Yeah, another one of his main objectives is education. That's one of his main focuses. And he's saying parents matter because he wants parents to have like more initiative over education. So that's another big area he's focused on. And more initiative for parents typically doesn't correlate with uh, more open ways of thinking, I believe. Yeah, so the big issue right now is critical race theory. That's a big debate between the two and kind of an area where maybe McAuliffe is getting a little bit of backlash um, and Youngkin is trying to brand himself as someone in support of parents. Mm, Okay. Um, I also believe he had a controversial stance when it came to election integrity, I believe, right? Um, so for election integrity, he's really trying to toe the line and not brand himself as too much of a Trump supporter. Um, so what he's saying is that he doesn't think that the election was stolen necessarily, but he does want to focus more on election integrity um, as a way to like not ostracize the Virginia moderates, but also not ostracize the far-right Trump supporters. And that is a tough... <laughs> balance to tie uh, or to toe if you're a Republican, I believe. Um, and I know he has encouraged vaccines, but opposed mandates. Um, what would you say if you had to pick between he's closer to Trump or closer to a moderate like Romney? I would. What would you say? I mean, policy wise, I would say he's closer to Trump, but he's really trying to distance himself from yeah. Trump. And just like I said, toe that line. Like he wants to attract moderates without ostracizing Trump supporters. And I think so far he's honestly been doing a pretty good job at that, at least message wise, if not policy wise. Definitely. And you see that in the poll numbers, which we'll talk about in a bit. Um, but I do know that on October 13th, he went to a Take Back Virginia rally. Um, it was a right wing rally where attendants, attendees pledged allegiance to a flag that was at the January 6th insurrection. Uh, Trump called into the rally. 
uh, and told attendance attendees to vote for Youngkin. Um, I, I don't know. I feel like he could have just gone there. Like he's rich enough. I don't know what he was doing with his time. He's probably just <laughs> golfing. Uh, but he and and Youngkin thanked the organizer of the rally. But he later described the pledge of allegiance to that flag as as weird and wrong. So he's definitely trying to play this almost, you could say, two faced kind of campaign. Where on one hand he's you know in person with far right and QAnon believers. Um, look, like, look, we praise January, uh, January 6th. We, we praise, uh, the insurrection. We praise Trump. And then he'll go the day after and go, no, that, that felt weird to me. Yeah. He's definitely very much trying to find his footing in the Republican party because initially he was thanking the organizers of the rally. He was, you know, supporting it by most accounts. But as soon as it went not in his direction, he's like, you guys shouldn't have been doing that. So I think in in many ways, in that area, in vaccines, in election integrity, he's really trying to remain in between the moderate Republicans and the far-right Republicans. Right. And you said he hasn't tied himself too much to Trump as well. So initially during the primary, that was really the name of the game, tying yourself to Trump. Mm-hmm. So he released ads where he was saying, like, Trump was saying that Yunkin was a great candidate. He was really trying to show how Trump supported him. But as of late, he's really trying to distance himself from Trump because that's what you have to do to win the state as a whole. Mm -hmm. So, you know, lately he has been saying that this is a race about him. He's the candidate, not Trump, and not necessarily saying he doesn't support Trump or doesn't want Trump support in the race, but more so saying that it's not really about Trump. Okay, thank you. Uh, So I'm going to go to Will. Um, So I mentioned during uh, the last conversation that the poll numbers for Youngkin have been rising. Recently, in the recent polls, we have uh, Youngkin taking a lead with the Trafalgar Group poll, 48.4% to 47.5. In a Monmouth University poll, they were tied at 46 in the uh, when balancing both models that they used, which we'll also talk about later. Fox News had McAuliffe uh, with a five-point lead over Youngkin. um, And YouGov on October 4th to 11th had a three-point lead for McAuliffe with a margin of error of 4.2%. It is a closer race than I believe anyone would have hoped for or wanted, um, unless you're a Republican, of course. So, so Will, how concerned should Terry McAuliffe be with these numbers? Do you think he's betting on certain models of turnout, or is he just panicking right now? Yeah, so I think it's fair to say uh, that he should be concerned. I mean, Virginia has moved further and further uh, blue as time has gone on. So to see this be a race where the polls are close to tied, that should be concerning McAuliffe, especially considering he already had a term as governor, which mm-hmm. typically gives a candidate an advantage. Right. Um, so, you know, I think I think it's not a good sign for him. But I think that it could always be turned around even this late in the race, because if you look at what happened in California with the recall, uh, you know, Newsom was pretty much tied with Elder and then everybody simultaneously realized what was happening, <laughs> freaked out, and his poll numbers went back up because Democrats, much more so than Republicans, uh, they have sort of a bigger base than Republicans typically do, but it's much harder to get them to turn out. It's a, a lot broader enthusiasm tent for sure. based. Yeah. 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 So I think it's safe to say that his model of turnout basically is panic, where now that <laughs> Democrats have realized that this is actually a very close race they might lose. You could see McAuliffe rebound in the few days before the election, um, especially, just based the, off of, especially yeah. on the election day vote itself. Yeah, yeah. Just based off of a lot of people realizing that this isn't a race you can just sit out and watch. Yeah. 
And when I talked about that Monmouth University poll, it has 46-46 with the margin of error 3.1%, but they ha- they ran two different models. One model, model one, gave more weight to lower pro- lower propensity voters in exurbs and rural areas, uh, and in that model, McAuliffe trailed Youngkin 48 to 45. In model two, which gave moderately good turnout with a higher share of voters of color, uh, it was the opposite. McAuliffe led 48-45. So this is a question for both of you. What can Democrats do to ensure that voter turnout stays high after such a high-stress general election in 2020? What are they doing to try and ensure a high voter turnout? And what aren't they doing right now? Either one of you can go first. Oh, yeah. Okay. So um, it's it's a, it's a hard question. Um, I mean, turnout is basically the name of the game of most elections, especially for Democrats. So it's sort of that elusive thing that people have been chasing uh, is the formula on how to get turnout high consistently. Mm. And part of what's made that difficult is that Virginia has their municipal and local elections on off years. So the result is that in Virginia, um, every year there is a major election. Mm. So in Virginia, it's very easy for people to sort of get exhausted because there aren't off years where you can sort of take a back seat and only have a few local elections. There's always a big election going on. Especially with campaign cycles reaching into over year-long yeah, events as they've at this gotten point. longer and longer and From longer. the Democratic primary to the Democratic yeah. general election last year, it was like a 13 or 14-month slog. Yeah, I mean, abs- you know, incredibly long. So... And it also doesn't help that Terry McAuliffe, uh, you know, he's a very successful fundraiser and a lot of Democratic Party people are big fans of him, but he didn't have much of a legacy in the state prior to his first term. And during his first term, while he improved Virginia's economy and has a number of achievements he would certainly point to, none of them are things that would really get people excited on a grassroots level. Mm. Um, So from what I've seen, he's been trying to fix that enthusiasm problem by bringing in big names like President Biden and former President Obama, uh, which I believe Mm -hmm. the Obama rally was just recently. Yeah, just yesterday. Um, Yeah. So he's been bringing in big names and people uh, to get out the crowds. And I think the most important thing he can do, which he is doing right now, honestly, I think his best option is to just continue to try and tie Youngkin to Trump Mm -hmm. and emphasize uh, the idea that while the two candidates are superficially similar, uh, both being straight, white, old, male businessmen. Um, well, that, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say old, old. I'd say Joe yeah, Biden, late or Bernie Sanders, the, the, 70, <laughs> the 70-year-olds. I'd Biden say they're old, old. the age game there. But, <laughs> Shifted um, the goalpost a little bit to the right. But yeah, despite their superficial similarities, I think uh, McAuliffe's best option is to try and emphasize that on a on a real policy level, there are strong differences between the candidates and that uh, you know people should make sure to come out and vote. Yeah, I mean, going off of that, I even think, I don't know how plausible or beneficial it would be, but I think it might be helpful helpful for McAuliffe to distance himself from Biden a little bit because mm. Biden has been losing his approval ratings, and that could be a big factor in this race, how much McAuliffe ties himself to Biden. Especially because Northern Virginia is so close to Washington, D.C., half the, half the people up in Northern Virginia practically use Washington politics to vote. Um, you see, obviously, the further you get from Washington, I'd say there's a little bit more distance there. Like if you go to an election in Arizona, it's more, people are more concerned about Arizona issues. Um, but I would definitely say that in this election, Joe Biden's performance as president has an outsized impact on how this race goes. And that's why this race is so important, I, I feel. This is, it, it's essentially the first midterm. 2022 yeah. midterms is, uh, you know, the, the first midterms in a presidency is typically a good sign of how the country feels about that president immediately. Um, and right now, it's not looking too great for Biden. His, his approval ratings uh, rebounding a little bit, 
But if he doesn't pass, you know, the reconciliation bill, the infrastructure bill um, soon, I can't imagine those numbers are going to look any better. Um, yeah, so so this is definitely it's definitely an important election for both parties. And we'll get into that a little later. But, Nicole, what uh, as we talked about McAuliffe's numbers slipping, Youngkin's numbers are rising. So what do Virginians see in Youngkin that's missing in McAuliffe? Like what what is Youngkin promising that McAuliffe can't deliver? What areas or demographics uh, are pushing his rise? And do you really think it's enough for Youngkin to pull out an upset victory here? Well, to start with that last one, I definitely think he has a chance. I think one of the big areas of focus right now is the economy because that's really what where Youngkin is saying, hey, I have the experience in this area. I can get Virginia back on its feet. And maybe that's something that people aren't as satisfied with what McAuliffe is pushing in that area. Um, but really the major areas where Youngkin is rising is with independence. So that appealing to moderates is definitely imp- an important area. Um, currently, Youngkin is, has 6% more of the independent votes, according to polls, than, um, than McAuliffe does. So definitely appealing to moderates is an area where Youngkin is leading at the moment. Also, obviously, white voters, Republican voters, he's leading in all those areas. And another interesting area, I would say, is that in terms of endorsements, he just received an endorsement from the Hampton Roads Black Caucus, which um, obviously he McAuliffe is still leading among all black voters. But that caucus is bipartisan. And historically, they have only endorsed Democratic candidates for governor in Virginia. So the fact that they endorsed Yunkin is not great for McAuliffe, I would say. Oh, not at all. Um, and the Hampton Roads area too. The, I mean, the Virginia Beach, Chesapeake, Norfolk, Newport News. Those are that's a really important area in this election. Right. For the for uh, this race, the two biggest areas I would say are you have four suburban counties: uh, Luden, Fairfax, Prince William, and Henrico. Henrico is Richmond. The other three are Northern Virginia. Uh, those are four suburban counties that were carried by Joe Biden with over sixty percent of the vote in 2020, 60 to seventy percent. Historically, they've been Republican districts, um, but in recent years, the Democrats have made huge gains. And the amount of votes in those areas are going to be huge, uh, a big tell of Democratic staying power in the suburbs and the strength of electoral trends nationally. Um, and then the Hampton Roads area, which you mentioned, that's also incredibly key. Now, Norfolk and Newport News um, are very urban hubs, um, and Biden or uh, McAuliffe should certainly win those. But Virginia Beach and Chesapeake, uh, those are much more suburban. Um, and they both voted for Trump in 2016, but Biden in 2020 as part of the blue wave in the suburbs. So, you know, it's a continuation of the suburban trend. And that endorsement especially should play a huge, a huge uh, difference in the, that area. It'll be really interesting to see, you know, who comes out of victory in that area and who knows, you know, who knows how this election is going to go, especially down there. Because especially, you know, you see so much attention in northern Virginia and even Richmond. You, you never think about that one little corner of Virginia that has a ton of people. Um, so we'll see how that impacts uh, the race. Uh, so next up, let's talk about uh, fundraising for a second. So our progressives... So, so here's, a, here's a deal with Terry McAuliffe's fundraising. Uh, McAuliffe has raised upwards of $44.5 million in donations, uh, about, three million, or about $2 million more than Yunkin. Uh, and he has about double the cash on hand, $7.8 million to $3.5 million. McAuliffe has gotten 41,000 donations of $100 or less, as compared to Youngkin's 13,000 donations. However, 
McAuliffe has a lot of money coming from billionaires and PACs. He has $1.2 million from at least 10 billionaires and their spouses, as well as many more uh, PACs and individuals that have donated upwards of $100,000. From Priorities USA PAC, $500,000. Every Town for Gun Safety, four hundred. dollars Mid-Atlantic Laborers Political Education Fund, $250,000. And even Gordon Gund, the former owner of the Cleveland Cavaliers, has donated $200,000 to his campaign. Youngkin, on the other hand, has only gotten 280000 from seven billionaires and their spouses. Um, and his top, he's only had two groups that have donated over $100,000, the Hall Over Creek Development Company and the Republican Governors Association. However, Youngkin loaned roughly $16.5 million from his own wealth, which is $440 million of net wealth. Uh, the $16.5 million was roughly 4% of his fortune, uh, and he donated all of that to his campaign as well as another $1 million of his own money to the Virginia Wins Pack. So, my question for both of you. Um, are progressives less likely to vote for McAuliffe given the amount of billionaires donating to his campaign? Or do they see the incredibly wealthy Yunkin doing a lot of self-funding and ignore McAuliffe's fundraising methods? And do you think do you think any of this changes the turnout of this election? How, how likely are progressives going to go vote? Um, and do you think the fundraising really plays a role here? Yeah, so I think with fundraising, what we've seen is McAuliffe using uh, his skill in his past to his advantage, which is being an incredibly successful fundraiser. So as a result, he has managed to uh, not just equal but surpass the fundraising numbers of one of the richest men in Virginia uh, simply through his work fundraising. Uh, but yeah, as you can imagine, um, you know that money coming from billionaires and other rich people tends to rub a lot of progressives uh, the wrong way, which forms a lot of the grassroots of the party. So it's understandable to think that that might hurt turnout, which it might do. But I think that the if you were to ask the average progressive what their opinion on it was, I would say that they wouldn't exactly be happy about it, but that coming from a call if it wasn't unexpected. So I don't think it'll really impact turnout for the most part, because with a race as close as it is, I don't think a lot of people are going to be voting out of uh, spite necessarily, or uh, as much as they understand that, you know, uh, with how close the race is, it's sort of a tough thing to sit out. But I'm sure that because of the nature of both candidates, it's an interesting situation. It's part of why the election works really well as a broader barometer is because, you know, both candidates don't really appeal to the grassroots base of their parties. Um, so I think that insofar as it impacts turnout for McAuliffe, I think Youngkin's equivocating on Trump also impacts his turnout. So I, th- I think there'll be pretty similar effects. Okay. Um, Nicole, did you have something to add? Yeah, I would agree. I think progressives, obviously it's not ideal for them, but I don't think it'll make much of a difference because most people don't vote based on the candidates' fundraising methods. Like that's not an area that people are mostly concerned about. So if they're turned away, um, if progressives are turned away from McAuliffe, I think it would more likely be because of his policies. Um, so yeah, the fundraising methods not great in the eyes of progressives, I'm sure, but I doubt that it'll make a major difference in turnout. Okay, uh, and I will put out uh, a few numbers of the early vote, um, which you know I, I do think there's going to be a, a substantial number of people on both sides voting on election day in person. Now that that's really an option as COVID's kind of been cooling down and people are more confident going outside with the vaccines. But according to Target Smart, which is a leader in political data, voter turnout through early voting has had 54% of votes thus far come from voters over the age of 65. 
At this point in 2020, seniors accounted for just 37% of votes cast. That is a huge difference. 18 to 29-year-old, their share of the vote has fallen from 10.9% in 2020 to just 5.4% now. I would say that is an incredibly worrying number for McCall. Um, you know, more younger people could be more comfortable voting in person on election day, um, but it could also spell a huge worry for McCall for turnout amongst young people. He's not exactly the most inspiring candidate. You know, mm-hmm. he's, a, he's a straight white male, um, and that's not going to excite uh, like the progressive wing of the party, um, as well as, you know, he's not in a... He's not exactly a progressive person. Yeah. He definitely has some more long-term career in fundraising. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, that does not excite, you know, a nineteen-year-old college student. Um, so it's going to be fascinating to see what the share of the votes comes from young people. Um, yeah. Hopefully, for McAuliffe's campaign, you know, they show it in big numbers, vaccinated to their polls, to their polls, and in, uh, in person. But at the same time, Youngkin could be could be really happy with these numbers. And just think, okay, they're not, they're just not interested. Um, so yeah, I, it, you know, it's going to be very interesting seeing how the demographics shape up to be after this election. Hopefully, for McAuliffe's sake, you know, it rebounds on election day, but we'll see. Yeah, I think, uh, I think for McAuliffe, he, uh, I don't think he should be overly concerned about these numbers, just because I think a lot of people are just excited to go back to the polls in person. Mm. It's kind of a funny thing to think about, but I, I've heard it from a surprising number of people that they're, you know, they're excited to get back to their polling place. Um, <laughs> and then I think, you know, there there are probably going to be fewer young people voting as well, just because a lot of young people were motivated to vote by Trump and by how much of a sort of a larger than life caricature he was. A lot of the time, he could motivate people to vote even as many against him mm. uh, just because of how much of a presence he was. So I'm sure that turnout overall is going to decline, um, if not by a huge number, by a little bit. But yeah, I think I think it's not good news for McAuliffe and it's contributed to this overall uh, little storm of bad news that he's had. But I don't think it's I don't think it's campaign ending. Uh, it's something he'll have to overcome, but I don't think it's impossible. OK, right. The early vote population is probably not representative of the total voting population. So I don't think it's necessarily a huge deal for McAuliffe. And I think we'll really see come voting day how the turnout changes or maybe stays the same. Hopefully he can get some young voters out there. But I mean, this could be a really, really good referendum on how vaccine hesitancy and vaccine and people having taken the vaccine, how they operate. Uh, Obviously, there could just be more seniors because more seniors either haven't gotten the booster shots yet or are still just not comfortable with going out in person to these crowded places and voting on election day. Um, it's going to be fascinating, really. Um, I'm very excited to see these numbers because I think this is a really good test of how well vaccines help not just boost uh, you know, immunity, but also help boost confidence amongst a lot of people. Um, so I know we mentioned earlier, Nicole, um, Youngkin, or, sorry, McAuliffe tying himself to Biden too much. What implications does this race have for Democrats and Republicans across the country. What is, what are both parties sitting in their chairs watching for in this race? What are they hoping happens? And what are they prepared to do if this race doesn't go their way? Well, as you were saying earlier, this is one of the first major elections after the 2020 election. So it's definitely a chance for us to see how um, Americans are feeling in terms of Biden's presidency so far. So, you know, if McAuliffe wins, that's a good sign for Democrats. That shows that they still have support. And because Virginia is moderate, I think it's it can be kind of representative of the nation as a whole. So, you know, whoever wins this one, it, it could be representative of 
how people are feeling about Democratic performance nationwide. All right, Will. Yeah, I, I would say that I'm typically skeptical of using individual races as barometers for national opinion just because so many races come down to the specifics. But I think this race is actually an exception because McAuliffe and Youngkin are both sort of such default templates of their party's like <laughs> average, exact average candidate um, that I think you can see implications na- uh, nationwide based on the outcome of this race. Because when people are voting on this, I don't know if they'll be voting as much as they are for uh, McAuliffe or Youngkin as much as they're voting for uh, the general direction of both parties. Mm. So I think I think it's uh, worth looking at, and I think that regardless of who wins, I think the real implication will be the margin by which that happens. Because mm-hmm. you know, if McAuliffe or Youngkin end up winning by you know a single digit, like one or two percent or less than that, then I don't think that really has too much of an implication. Uh, although it would certainly be painful for Democrats, but if we see a situation where McAuliffe ends up you know, taking a surprise win by five or more percent, that would be a sign that, uh, you know, maybe younger people are happy to go to the polls in person or that, uh, you know, the polling based on this state has, you know, overestimated Youngkin's support. But if we end up in a situation where Youngkin wins by, you know, five percent or more, that would be Ooh. pretty devastating. To <laughs> that would not be good for Democrats. Um, yeah. So I think I think it can have national implications, um, much more so than many local races. All right, cool. Uh, so a couple more questions. Uh, what, so I'm going to ask both of you this, what do you think your candidate that, you know, you've done the most research on Nicole with Youngkin, Will with McAuliffe, what should they be doing in these last nine days before the election? And is there anything either candidate can do to sway the election this late? Um, I don't think there's much they can do this late in the game. People are already forming their perceptions of them. So as I was saying, McAuliffe distancing himself from Biden Youngkin distancing himself from Trump would definitely be good for both candidates. But at this point, people already have their views of each candidate. So for Youngkin and for McAuliffe, too, I think really appealing to moderates is what they have to do, because that's who is going to be the determining factor in this race. All right, well... Yeah, my, if I could give advice to Terry McAuliffe right now, uh, my <laughs> advice would be to, uh, big surprise, stick with what is popular about him and his legacy and what is most popular about McAuliffe's uh, legacy during his first term as governor and about the policies he's advocated now running for governor, uh, again, is his economic record. Um, Virginia performed very well economically during his first term, and you can argue about how much of that is accreditable to uh, the governor, but that's certainly something he's staked his reputation on. And then the other big thing, too, is um, Democrats have seen a successful model in California and in a couple other states around COVID policy, because when you look at a state like Virginia, where it's sort of got a very anti-populist sentiment to it, and it's uh, a lot of people there vote very strictly based on like uh, you know competence and things like that. Um, Virginia is a state where COVID mandates and other sort of COVID policies are relatively popular. So I think McAuliffe shouldn't be afraid to be publicly supportive of, you know, his COVID record and vaccination rates and all that stuff, because I think Virginia is a state where that that's very popular. So just stick to his record. All right. So I'm going to put you both on the spot here a little bit. I know you might have thought this was over. (laughs) What is your... While doing this research, let's lighten this up a little bit, lighten the mood. What is your favorite thing that you've seen your candidate do? Now, I will, I know you have a list of fun things that Terry McAuliffe yes. has done throughout his life. So, you know, give us <laughs> give us one or two, one or two, both of, both of you, if you if you have anything, of just 
an interesting thing that your candidate has done or a moment in the campaign that your candidate has committed? Uh, you know, what are they doing? Yeah. What, yeah. Are, they, what are they What are they struggling with? Uh, <laughs> so McAuliffe, <laughs> something I, I find actually pretty interesting about him and it's kind of made me like him as I've done my research on him, is that McAuliffe is a very weird guy. Like, he's just very interesting. Like, he's got a lot of flavor to him. He's a complicated personality. Uh, you know, he's just, he's just a really strange person in sort of like a fun way. Um, and he's not afraid to say what he thinks, regardless of how sort of weird that might be. So, for example, um, back originally when he was working with Jimmy Carter, uh, the famous story that McAuliffe always tells everywhere, because it is admittedly pretty wild, is that to secure a $15,000 contribution to the campaign, he wrestled an alligator. Uh, I don't know the exact specifics of this because a lot of information on his time at the Carter campaign is, is hard to find. But apparently, yeah, he wrestled like really actually wrestled an alligator to secure a donation, which I mean, that that's commitment considering I don't think he normally does that. Um, <laughs> and he's also not from Florida. Yeah, no, he's from New York. I don't think they have any <laughs> alligators to wrestle up there. Um, I'm sure they would wrestle an alligator though up in, <laughs> up in New York, New York city. Oh, they'd love it. Um, and then other than that, more recently um, when he ran for governor the first time and did a lot more poorly than was expected of him. Although the second time he did better than was expected. Um, the first time he didn't have much of a filter. Uh, he was a little, <laughs> little excitable. Um, oh, so sure. there are a lot of quotes of him just, and you see this again, like most recently where he had this, this quote that Youngkin's been hammering away at where uh, parents like choice doesn't matter when it comes to schools and stuff where, right. you know, he just sort of let that one slip and it just has been hammering him. Uh, and in 2009, you know, he just had a lot of weird statements. And I think one of my favorites was uh, he just like saw like a bag of trash or something, something like that. And he just like stopped what he was doing and he just looked at it and he went like, you know, I love trash. And then he just, he just went back to normal stuff. But everybody was so like everyone was so confused by that moment that it like genuinely might have hurt him in the race. But, Maybe he really likes trash, you know. <laughs> I mean, it made me kind of love him, but... <laughs> You mean Goofy Terry, yeah. <laughs> how, about, how about Youngkin? He's got anything? I don't know. I don't think Youngkin is so goofy. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> from what I can tell, he doesn't seem like a very interesting guy. I don't I don't mean to insult him in that way. There's a lot of other things. <laughs> there's a lot of other things I could insult him on, but I mean, there's not much interesting about a 50-something-year-old white businessman. Yeah. Uh, he just poses with, like, flannels and yeah. makes himself seem like, you know... <laughs> The great guy. <laughs> Few yeah. people are quite as flavorful as McCall. He <laughs> he really is a character when you look into him. <laughs> right. And Yunkin, he really just wants to be the average guy. So don't I don't know how interesting he is. I definitely think the the whole take back Virginia rally was interesting. The fact that he called it weird. Like that's not the first word I would use to describe it, but it's odd. Sure is. That's weird. Oh yeah. Uh, and before we wrap up, um, one more question I had. Well, let me see if I can remember it. Oh, right, right, right. <laughs> you know, you know, it's it's been a long day. Uh, <laughs> what would you say is your prediction for how this race is going to go? Like, what? How do you think voters are going to react? What do you think the margin will be? That kind of thing. Yeah, it's tough. Uh, I'm honestly, my opinion is a coin toss. Uh, but I think uh, I think a lot of people are quick to count McAuliffe out, which I don't think is necessarily true. He's had a couple bad weeks, but we saw, I mean, in, in 2016, 
uh, you know, Hillary was up like 10 points. And then within a week, Trump had got to the point where he won the election. So, you know, Election Day can sort of turn out things that nobody expects. So oh, for sure. my, my prediction is no prediction. <laughs> <laughs> I would definitely I'll go next. I definitely I might be a little bit more optimistic on the Democratic side. I'm going to take McAuliffe by about four, four and a half percent. Um, I think turnout in the suburbs is going to continue with the national trend. Um, yeah. And I don't think this might this might be too optimistic. Um, you know, I admit that. But I think that I think that suburban trend is really just going to carry McAuliffe. Obviously, he's going to control urban centers. Um, but I do think that enough enough people in the suburbs, especially around northern Virginia, are going to come out in waves to support him. Um, so I'll take McAuliffe by about four and a half percent. I will complete the trio. I I hope I'm wrong, but I think I think Youngkin could definitely take it. I mean, right now we're seeing this as a toss-up, but I think it's important to look at the trends. And as you were saying, Will, the past few weeks have been bad for McAuliffe, but we're almost at the election. So the fact that he's been going downhill, not a good sign for him. And I, I feel like Youngkin could definitely take his lead now and end up winning come election day. But I, I could see it going either way. I'm just leaning towards Yunkin winning right now. Yeah, I think Yunkin. I think Yunkin definitely ha- he definitely has a chance. I'm not definitely saying that, but I think his margin of victory is going to be smaller if he wins. Like I feel like McAuliffe could win from anywhere from one percent to seven percent, mm-hmm. like given certain turnout, you know, methods. Yeah. Um, but then I think Yunkin can only. I don't think he can win by more than about three or four points, just based on the demographics of Virginia yeah. uh, and how upset victories typically. Yeah, typically happening. You know, it's going to be close. State at this point is like, uh, you know, D by like plus five. So it would be impressive if young. Oh my God! Yeah. Rack up the numbers, but something else too that I forgot to mention earlier, but I do think informs a lot of people's opinions about the race is the controversies that have gone on in Virginia, uh, in the years previous to this. Because after McAuliffe left, uh, I don't know. I'm sure people do remember Ralph Northam uh, oh, ran God. for governor. That was a very yep. uh, controversial race, and then Northam won, uh, and then Northam had a scandal. Uh, Just one. Yeah, he. he um, I don't remember the exact specifics of the scandal, but it was a. He, he had worn blackface at an, uh, at an event, maybe, or, or at some point. But there were there were photographs of it. So a lot of people, including McAuliffe, called for Northam to resign. It was his um, yearbook, I think. Yeah, yeah. I guess it was the. Yearbook. Why would you put blackface in your in your yearbook? <laughs> like, like it's awful doing it anyways. But why would you? Why would you immediately like, like oh yeah, this has gotta go in the yearbook? Yeah. No, he it uh, was bad, right? And then what so everyone was like, Well, Northam will resign and his lieutenant governor will succeed him. But then the lieutenant governor was accused of sexual assault first by one woman and then by a number of women. Um, so they were in sort of a tough spot and McAuliffe, along with most other Virginia Democrats, uh, stopped calling for Northam to resign because, you know, at that point <laughs> when both the governor and lieutenant governor have scandals like that, I guess the sexual assault is understandably the worst scandal. Um, so there really needs to be a third uh, option. Yeah. A, a no, third absolutely. Rank. So I, I believe the original intention had been for Northam and lieutenant governor Fairfax both to resign and be replaced some other way. But. Uh, Governor Lieutenant Governor Fairfax accused those accusing him of sexual assault of racism and refused to resign. Yikes. And actually, oh, Lieutenant Governor Fairfax ran in the Democratic primary for governor this election. Oh, he got 3% <laughs> of the vote, which for a lieutenant governor is terrible. Um, and now he's sort of stuck out in the cold. But yeah, so a lot of what's informed people's opinion of McAuliffe 
and of the race generally is that the previous, you know, three or four years in Virginia with the governors have been such a sort of a chaotic mess with all of this stuff that people in Virginia who are already, I think, in favor of sort of like an apolitical competent type government, they're not they don't really have a populist sentiment too much uh, in a lot of Virginia, you know. They're tilted even more in that direction by the fact that a lot of people, after all this, what they want more than anything is just like peace and quiet. Mm. So Youngkin's branding of himself as like the world's least interesting man has been pretty good in that respect. A lot of Virginians see him and they see peace and quiet. Like, yeah, it's true. They want boring. Some people just want boring. Right. And with that, I think we're going to wrap up this episode unless anyone has anything, uh, anything to add at the end. Um, but anyways, thank you all for listening so much to this episode. Uh, we'll be coming back in just about two weeks. Uh, we will be featuring a special guest on our program. I'm not going to spoil it yet, but we do have a very actually high-profile person. Uh, and he'll be, he'll be coming in to do an interview. Um, and until then, can't wait to uh, talk to you again. Uh, I guess this is us signing off. Everybody say bye. Bye. <laughs> bye. <laughs> we did not write this down. Bye.